AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Our reading for today is Matthew 21, 33 through 39. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who had planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Thanks for being on on this snowy day, and thanks to all those tuning in online. My name is Chris, and I'm one of the deacons here, and it's a tremendous privilege to be up before you this morning. So I'm going to pray, and we'll get right into this parable this morning. Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for carving out just a few moments when we could come together and contemplate your scriptures and see how it might apply to our lives today. And Lord, I pray that we would be a fruitful people, a people that have seen how generous and gracious you have been and waiting for that fruit in our lives. And that all of us would wrestle with the truth that you made yourself known to us through your son Jesus. And we all need to know what to do with that person of Jesus Christ. So be with us this morning, God. I pray that you would uh, be pleased by our time and honored in the things that we cover through your scriptures. In your name, amen. Well, I'm guessing we don't have a lot of people from Pueblo. Show of hands, anybody? No. So nobody, nobody commuted from Pueblo because there's not a lot of farmers, right? We're in an urban context, and so this is what's called the parable of the wicked husbandman. My wife heard that, and she said, you're preaching on guys again? And some of you laugh because you know what a husbandman is, but if you Google that, it'll tell you this word has been in decline since about the 1800s, so it's not used a ton anymore, but it's a, it's a, it's a farmer, so a tenant, someone who would till land and take care of a, a, a physical property. And Christ is telling this parable, and the reason he's using a parable is because through the use of story, through analogy, he can often flush out meaning that becomes relevant to the hearers in a unique way. And so we'll work through this parable and look at the different levels or layers of the parable, and that'll help us understand it a little bit better. And so the the three levels that we'll look at throughout this parable are first the literal level, the actual story itself. But then there's going to be a contextual application because Christ is speaking to a different group of people than I am today. 2,000 years ago, this was relevant to the Pharisees and the crowds and the chief elders in a very specific way, and so there's an application for them. And then there's an application for us today because God's word, the Bible, is active. It actually meets us where we're at in our life. And through parables, he wants to, to, to meet us and to speak to us today in unique ways. And so we'll look at those three different levels as we work through this story. So jumping right into the parable in verse 33, he says, listen to a parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press, built a watchtower, and rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he moved to another place. 
And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to collect his fruit. But we established there's not a whole lot of farmers in the audience. And so that might not resonate. You might not quite get that as much. But I know that there's a member of our congregation that owns a couple of firehouse sub-restaurants. And so it's a little bit like this. I know that this guy has invested really heavily in his restaurants. He's negotiated commercial leases and hired staff and trained a manager and advertised a grand opening and built out a space and purchased food and done all of this so that he can make that delicious, toasty, turkey bacon ranch sub that I want when I walk into a firehouse sub, right? And he expects that he's going to make profit. And it's that simple. He did all this work so that he would be able to produce subs and make profit. And in our, in our story on this literal level, the vineyard owner did all this stuff. He put up a wall and dug a wine press and built a watchtower so that this vineyard would produce fruit. And none of us are surprised that that's what he expects. It's his fruit, right? But fruit is not as uh, easy a concept as maybe it first seems. And so I started digging into this concept of fruit, and we're going to spend a few minutes actually looking at what fruit is, because a lot of us come with preconceived notions and all kinds of connections that may or may not be what the Bible has to say about fruit. And you're never going to guess what the actual definition in the Greek of fruit starts out as. Literally, fruit. And so clearly, there's something about actual fruit, like an apple or grapes, right, that's, that's very literal. But the definition, like our parable, has layers to it, and it gets deeper. The next is the result of procreation or offspring or descendants. It gets even more nuanced in the definition. It says the result of words or outcomes, the working out of a matter to a good outcome or consequence. And so I figured I should probably read what Scripture has to say about that, and it turned out that meant I'd have to read 183 verses that contain the word fruit. And that started in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, be fruitful and multiply. And it was interwoven all throughout Scripture and it ends in Revelation 22 when he talks about trees that bear fruit that heal the nations. And I started to realize that this idea of fruit was much deeper and more dynamic than I had ever imagined. And the other thing that became clear was that fruit can be both good and it can be bad. Which makes sense because if it's the result of actions or these outcomes, if you have good actions, there's a good chance you will have good outcomes. And if you have bad actions, you will likely have bad outcomes. But another interesting thing emerged as I looked through fruit in, in, in all of the scriptures, and that was that in the Old Testament, it was oftentimes very literal, kind of this top definition of what we think of as fruit. An example is in Deuteronomy 7.13. God says that he'll love you and bless you. He'll multiply you. He'll bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground, your grain, your wine, your oil, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock, and the lands that he swore to your fathers to give to you. And so here he's talking about very literal fruit, actual fruit, or the provision and bounty that he would give to a people. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, it's a very literal understanding of fruit. It hints at, at kind of what's to come, foreshadows that a little bit in Deuteronomy 29 at this deeper meaning of fruit when he says, Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan whose heart turns away from the Lord our God and goes to serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. And he's starting to hint that fruit might come from within us. Fruit might be deeper than this literal understanding that we have. And it's sort of like Christ who took all of the teaching and in the Sermon on the Mount said, you've heard it said that it was one way but it's so much bigger than you ever imagined. And fruit does a similar thing in the New Testament. 
And so as I looked through all the verses in the New Testament on what fruit actually was and how we probably start to understand it today, there were five things that I understood to be facets of fruit. So I'm just gonna list them for you and there'll be scripture references up on the screen that you can, in your own time, go and study and look into. But here are the five things. Christ-like character, a life characterized by good works, a faithful witness, lips that praise God, and a generous heart. Those five things make up kind of facets of fruit and different ways that we would see it manifested. But two of these in particular I want to look at this morning because they're probably the ones that most readily come to mind as we say the word fruit, especially if you grew up in a Christian home or you've been around Christian cultures, you hear fruit, and there are probably a few things that readily come to your mind. These two things are Christian character and good deeds or works. So for many of you who know the Bible, you'll know that there's the fruits of the Spirit, right? And in Galatians 5.22, we see this list of Christian character attributes that we see in the life of somebody who is bearing fruit in this facet. But there's another verse in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8. And if you look at these two lists, it's, it's a long list, and it's probably up on the screen, but you see peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, virtue, knowledge, endurance, brotherly love, among others. And then there's two things that are on both of these lists as they relate to Christian character. Love and self-control. So if you're starting at this point to ask yourself, what does fruit actually look like? Do I have it in my life? How do I know if there's fruit in my life? This is a great place to start. These two, love and self-control, can be an amazing litmus test of whether or not you are creating and producing fruit in this facet of Christian character in your life. Discipline's a pretty simple one, self-control. Do you get up and actually read your Bible? Spend time in prayer? Are you faithful with carving out time for your family and juggling all the demands of your life? Are you disciplined? Maybe it means being physically fit and taking good care of your body. But self-control and controlling your own self and life is a really important aspect of Christian character. And so is love. You know, there's those people that are just jovial and light and fun to be around. Cole Casey's kind of like that. Every time you see him, he's just, he's laughing before he's even gotten close to you. You know, he's just, he's happy. He's a very loving person, and I feel like that is evidence of fruit in his life. And so Christian character is the first facet of fruit that I think is worth considering. And the second is good deeds. And this one is really important to stop and take a moment on. Because there's a danger in good deeds. And the danger is this, that we would short-circuit the process of bearing fruit and skip right to the good deeds. We're going to sing a song after the sermon. It's called Poison Tree, and one of the lines is really profound. It says, I tried to tie good fruit to a tree that had poison down to the roots. And what it's saying is that you'll meet people in your life who are fruitful and you'll see the things that they're doing and you'll think, I want to be like them. I want those things in my life. So you'll go and you'll short-circuit the process and jump right to the deeds. You'll start serving in the place that they serve and loving on the people that they're loving on and you'll jump right to all of the things that they're doing. And other people might look at that and think, man, you're a great person, you're doing good things, you're serving God, all of it's there. But it's not coming from a heart, from a root that loves and knows God and what he's caused you to do in your life and the fruit that he's asking you to bear. Instead, 
You're just short-circuiting the process. And the reality is we're not going to know in the lives of one another whether or not we're short-circuiting the process. But we are going to know in our own life. So sometimes that means serving at the rescue mission because you feel good. It, it strokes your ego. But maybe that's not how God would have you do it. Maybe it's showing up at church and putting your butts in these seats because you feel guilty if you don't come. That might not be fruit. You could spend the whole hour, I'm up here talking, just checking out. I'm not actually going to talk for a full hour, so don't worry. And Christ warned about this in his day. In Matthew chapter 7, he's talking to a group of people who had a lot of what would look like fruit to us. They were prophesying and casting out demons and doing miracles. And he had these scary words to say to them. Depart from me. I never knew you. It wasn't because of your relationship with me that you went out and did all that stuff. You did it on your own autonomy and authority and with your own power. When you went and thought that that was what I wanted, you don't know me. You're not seeking me. That's not a result of your relationship with me. And so this is the terrifying and wonderful thing about fruit. That it's going to look different for every single one of us in the room. Because we don't serve a God who gives us prescriptions like many religions that say, check these boxes, do this list of things, and God will love you. You will be right with God. You will earn salvation. We don't get to pray five times a day and, and fast during Ramadan and take a pilgrimage to Mecca. It is not that simple. Instead, we have Romans 7, which says that we've died to the law. All of the prescriptions of the Old Testament, the hundreds of laws that said these are in place to make you right with God, those are gone because of Jesus. And instead, with the freedom that we've been given as a result of that, we need to figure out what fruit actually looks like now. And here's a cool side note about L2, that we are really about helping you figure out what fruit actually looks like in your life. We're a church that wants your life to be everything that God has intended it to be. And you've heard this a lot, but L2 is about teaching you to know your Bible and to know yourself and to know your mission because as you start to do that and we equip you with the resources to do so, you're gonna bear fruit, I guarantee it. And we see evidence of this because we took a congregational survey recently and we're thankful for all of the people who took their time to fill that out because it's invaluable for us. And I was struck by the fact that as I looked at all of the things that you are doing Monday through Saturday, the, the things you're going to go get plugged into and do as you leave this building in terms of nonprofits, leadership opportunities, outside ministries, just in this, this room of a, a select number of people, there are 35 different organizations that you guys are going to go serve and bear fruit in in the city. And that's what we want as a church. We're excited and thankful that that's what you guys are doing. And I hope that you talk to each other about that, that you share your stories of bearing fruit and the way that you see God shaping you in a specific way in context in your life, in relationships, in ministries, and organizations, to be fruitful because of who God has made you to be. So I looked at my life to think, well, what are some actual examples of fruit? And as I mentioned, I can't know for sure because this is between these people and God, but who are the people in my life that I look to and think that's fruit? in the life of somebody I know well. And a couple examples came to mind. I think it's a man actually asking somebody close to him, how are you doing? And not presuming the response is good, not just waiting for his turn to talk, 
stopping for a few moments to let the answer be, I'm not okay. I need help. I need prayer. I need encouragement. I need you to meet me where I'm at. But people don't go there unless we give them the permission. I think fruit can be making yourself emotionally available and saying, how are you doing? I think it's the woman that stays at a job that sucks because she believes that God has his hand in her in that role for a reason. Maybe it's for coworkers. Maybe it's the work itself. But she firmly believes that God has her there. She might not be paid fairly. She may hate her coworkers. She may get up on Monday and feel just dread at the thought of going to work, but she's confident and convicted that God has her there, and so she long suffers. I think it's a man who ties faithfully to the church despite a meager income, and he gives graciously and sacrificially, and he says, God, I don't expect a 10 times return and that you're just going to rain down money like a, a slot machine from heaven, but I know that you're going to take this meager gift and you're going to multiply it and you're going to do something mighty with it, and he gives with a generous heart. I think it's a woman who gets diagnosed with a disease that changed her life and made things hard. Her diet, her financial position, her family, every day just becomes a struggle because of a financial diagnosis. And yet in the midst of that, she finds joy. And when people look to her and say, why, why are you happy? Why do you seem joyful in the midst of a hard circumstance? She gets to glorify God and say, because this honors God. I think it could be a guy who grows in his gospel witness and his ability to articulate what God has done in his life. So he sits down with that high school friend over a beer and he gets to say, hey, I know I was that guy in high school, but I met Jesus and everything changed and I need to tell you about that and what my life is about now and who I am. Those are just a few examples of people in my life that are bearing fruit. So now we've gone really deep into fruit and we're gonna pull back out and go back to the parable, and we're going to keep moving through it now. So come with me as we kind of lift back up and move through the parable. So the vineyard owner has sent his, his servants to go get his fruit. And yet the tenant seized his servants, and they beat one, and they killed another, and stoned a third. And he sent other more than the first time, and the tenants treated him the same way. And on this literal level, at the highest level, we see one thing, and that is that the vineyard owner, who is God, is really gracious. Imagine that. You own a business, and at the end of the month, day, quarter, whatever, you send somebody to go get your profit that you've earned from your business, and they beat up the guy you send. I'm calling the SWAT team, like, game over, right? But that's not what he does. He sends another, and another, and another. And we see on this very literal level that he is so patient, undeservedly patient with these tenants. And Christ's application, the audience he was speaking to would have understood exactly what he was talking about because he was talking about the prophets of Israel. He was talking about the fact that God had sent 16 different prophets with essentially the same message, which was repent from sin and return to God, over 400 plus years. The Bible says God is abounding in love and he is slow to anger. How many of us realistically would send 16 people to get what was rightfully ours? But God did that. And he's kind of pushing into the Pharisees a little bit and he's, he's turning that knife a little bit and saying, God has sent person after person after person to you to bring you back to himself and, and you have done the same thing. You have killed them, you have ignored them, you have beat them. 
Yet it's easy just to make it about the Old Testament or the prophets or something removed, but it's relevant for us here today because God is patient and gracious with us. He waits for us to bear fruit, and he gives us opportunities to do it. My wife, Whitney, and I were in Seattle, and when we were dating, we went on a date up to Capitol Hill, which is kind of an urban area in Seattle, much like where we are here at L2. And we were walking back to the car from the date, and we see a man walking kind of next to us, and I get this feeling he's probably going to ask for something. And sure enough, he says, hey, can I have some money? I need to buy some warmer clothes. And it was uncharacteristically cold in Seattle. And I looked down, and I saw on his, his arm a medical discharge bracelet from the hospital. And he's wearing a T-shirt, and, and God says, you should give him your coat. And I think, that's crazy, and I don't have any money, so I have that normal cop out of thinking, well, I just have a credit card. Sorry, man, you don't have a square. I can't swipe you five bucks, right? And then God really pushes into my heart, and he's like, give up this coat, which ironically was a gift from my girlfriend, who is now my wife, and she was standing right next to me. I'm thinking, I'm going to get beat up if I give away this coat that my girlfriend gave me, right? And I just walk away. And we get in the car and we drive home. And the interesting thing was Whitney turned to me and she said, you know, it's weird. I feel like you're supposed to give him your coat. And I missed it. And I've had chances since. And I have great stories of God's faithfulness in letting me do something right. But I screwed up. He said, bear fruit. What a powerful testimony to give the coat off your own back. I didn't do it. And he's patient with us, and he's been patient for me. He didn't zap me with a lightning bolt. That would have been good. A lot of people would have met Jesus in Seattle, but he didn't, he didn't do that. And I'd encourage us today to ask for an opportunity to bear fruit, to look back at your life and see the areas where you know God has asked you to do something and you've decided not to, you've opted out. And then pray that he'd give you another chance and open your eyes because I promise it'll come faster than you probably want. And so in the second chunk of the parable, we see that he is so patient and gracious in waiting for fruit. Not only from the history of Israel and the Jewish nation, but in our lives as well, he is patient and he is gracious. But in, in the parable, he gets to the end of his rope and he's thinking, I don't know what else to do. And so he goes on and he says, last of all, he sends his son. Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and we'll take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. One of the translations, this parable is in three of the four gospels. And one of the the gospel translations says, and they reasoned among themselves. And by leaning into their own reason, they missed a foundational truth. The vineyard was never theirs. They were lessees. They had rented the vineyard. And in no world were they ever going to be owners of the vineyard. Definitely not when they beat all the servants. Unquestionably not when they killed his son. That was never on the table. If you go lease a car from Enterprise, just because you rip up the contract doesn't mean you get to keep the car. That'd be great, though. And they messed with this foundational truth And if you read all the way through, you'll see they clearly get destroyed. That's the inevitable conclusion to what they did because they leaned into their own reason and with their scheming and their plotting and their thinking, they thought, we can change the truth underneath this. 
The apologist Ravi Zacharias tells an incredible story about messing with foundations. He's an apologist, and he was speaking at a college campus in Ohio State, and they had the Wexner Center for Contemporary Art, which was a new building, $43 million renovation. And as he's driving up to give his talk, the student turns to him and says, Mr. Zacharias, this is the first postmodern building that's ever been built. And Ravi says, what do you mean postmodern? And the student says, well, the architect thought there was no purpose or meaning to life, and so architecture should reflect the same. There shouldn't be any purpose or meaning to the building or the design. So there's columns that don't support anything and walls that lean up against nothing and staircases that lead nowhere. And Ravi just had one really, really important question for him. What about the foundation? See, they didn't dare mess with that. They were smarter than that. They knew that if you messed with the foundation, the consequences would be unthinkable. But the reality is we have a culture that is messing with a foundational truth, and that is the existence or the non-existence of God. And we know that this is the case, and Russ cites these statistics often, but there's a growing demographic, especially among millennials, 35% of which today check the none box to religion, as if this foundational issue of whether or not there is a God was their choice to decide. They're the ones who rent a car and say, oh, I want to keep this car and tear up the contract, as if there will not be ramifications and consequences from that choice. They check the none box. I just don't want to deal with it. And yet, the noted atheist, Friedrich Nietzsche, called this bluff 130 years ago. This idea that we would think in our own minds we could decide if God was real or not, sort of killing God in our own minds, and in doing so, actually choosing ourselves to be God. And he did it with a parable of his own. I'm going to read some excerpts this morning from it. But I've condensed it, which you won't believe, but I promise it's actually the condensed version for time. He said, have you not heard that a madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours ran into the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who didn't believe in God were standing around, he provoked much laughter. Has he gotten lost, asked one. Did he lose his way like a child, asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage or emigrated? Thus they yelled and they laughed. But the madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Whither is God, he cried. I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? How shall we comfort ourselves, murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all the world has yet owned and bled to death under our knives? Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement? What sacred games will we invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to be worthy of it? See, Nietzsche was an atheist himself, but he had the courage to live into messing with the foundation of there not being a God and the implications that that would have. He was brave in that he followed his belief to its logical conclusions. But he walked into this crowd of people that had decided there wasn't a God and they had no idea that they were messing with a foundational truth and he's warning them. You're trying to drink up the sea. You are erasing the horizon. 
You are removing absolutes in any point of reference for life to have meaning. You need to think through the implications of that. But Nietzsche had, and to his credit, he lived into that which meant he removed all of the religious dogmas about things like sexuality, so he was sexually promiscuous. As a result, con contracted syphilis, and that addled his brain, and he went crazy and died in an insane asylum. It said that some of the last things he was quoting were psalms because he grew up in a religiously devout home, and God is not mocked. But Nietzsche at least had the courage to live into what he believed, but many people just think they can check the nun box and have no consequences for the foundational truth and issue that they are messing with. And what we see on every single level is that all of us, on every level, have to deal with Jesus. Because on the literal level, it was the vineyard owner's son. The vineyard owner, God, was out of the picture. But his son was there, and they had to figure out, what do we do with him? And they thought, if we kill the son, we'll get what we want. We'll get to keep the vineyard, which was wrong. And in the first century, Christ had just come into Jerusalem and he had created this amazing religious stir, and the religious leaders and the Pharisees thought, if we just kill him, things will get back to the status quo. We'll maintain power. Things will be good again. So we got to get rid of this Jesus guy. And today, people want to deal with Jesus. They want to get rid of Jesus because he is the cornerstone, the stumbling block of faith in God. But he is the visible image of the invisible God, and he's somebody that we have to confront. And the cool thing is that despite the fact that the Pharisees thought they could do away with God by killing Jesus... They were mistaken because God had a plan in that. They thought killing Jesus would get them what they wanted, but God knew differently. James Stewart of Scotland has this amazing quote about the crucifixion of Christ, about what they thought would happen and about what actually happened. He says that he, God, compelled their dark achievements, meaning their crucifying of Jesus, to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him, Christ, to a tree not knowing that by the very act they were bringing the world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the city gates to die, not knowing at that very moment they were lifting up the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back against the wall, helpless and defeated. They didn't know it was God who had himself tracked them down. He didn't conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. And see, they couldn't kill Jesus 2,000 years ago with nails on a cross, and our generation today cannot kill him with their disbelief. And it's my duty and my honor to tell you that the foundational truth of God's existence has to be confronted by every one of us, and that that God who is real expects fruit from our life. And so I'm going to ask the band to come back up and we're going to take communion and it's going to offer a unique opportunity for every person. For those of us who don't know God, who haven't ever said, I believe, I surrender, I'm done being God in my own life, trying to make all the decisions and call all the shots. For the first time addressing this foundational issue of the existence of God, it's a chance for you to say for the very first time, you're it, God, you're God, I'm not. And for many of us who are Christians, it's a chance to come and say, God, I haven't borne fruit like you would have me bear. I've failed, I've let you down, but you are gracious and you have given me more chances. And because of Jesus, I can bear fruit and be new. Prune me, even if it hurts, make me new, make me fruitful. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for 
your graciousness and waiting for fruit. We thank you for your scriptures, which illuminate such a robust and dynamic understanding of what fruit actually is. I pray, God, that for any of those who don't know God and you and your son Jesus and everything that he has done for us, that they would this morning. And I pray for all of us who do know him, God, that we would be fruitful in our city, in our communities, in our lives, that we would honor you with what we do and that it would be as an outflow and a connection to your son Jesus and the freedom that we find knowing that we are freed from the law, we are dead to it, but alive with Christ to bear good fruit for your good name. God, carve out the poison that gets to the root of our hearts and our spirits. Make us new this morning, Father. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 